0: We're back in the book of Genesis this morning. We uh, took a short detour in the first Thessalonians for a few weeks. Now back to Genesis where the chapters are long. uh, Open your Bibles to chapter 37. If you've got the pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 32 this morning. Um, If you have any questions about this text, Uh, As we go through it, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the box and type in your question. You can sign your name to that question if you want to, or you can do it anonymously. Uh, And uh, we'll take a look at those after we get through the passage. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for your people. Thank you for the way that you have um, gathered us together, that you have created this thing called the church, your body, your bride, uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the people of God. All these metaphors in your word that um, point to this, this unity this communion that we have with one another in Christ. God, I pray that we are people that recognize the value of that, uh, that as we, we come into this building today, this is not the church because it's a building. It's an expression of the church in these people. And and some of us are deeply connected relationally here. Uh, and And... We would, we would look around this room and, and see people who have, um, who have been the hands and feet of Jesus to us. And, and others maybe are visiting uh, or, or less connected, and, and we're grateful for everyone that's come today. But I just pray that one of the things that you stir in us is, is just a desire to be among your people, to be served and to be of service to your church, to love one another well. God, I pray for the Ratliff family and just the pain that they're going through. God, you know all the details and and the injustice that is taking place before their eyes. I pray especially for Sarah, a member of our church who um, is just bearing the weight of uh, just wicked things, wicked people, sin that is... um, attacking her family. And God, I pray that we as your people would bring comfort as we can, but mostly that your spirit would move in this situation, that, that as we've sung it, as we've read it, that, we would, that, sh- that they would recognize that y- your hand is on them for good. And God, I, I pray that, that as we work through this passage this morning, that we would all be reminded uh, of your love for us, even when it doesn't look very good outside. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I had a, a plan on Tuesday. I, I have a plan every Tuesday. It's not always the same plan, but it, it's all, there's always a plan. And um, that plan... Uh, involved working at my office, getting some things done, I had a checklist that I was excited about checking. Um, and I got a phone call from my wife who said the toilet wasn't working. And uh, typically, we, our community group meets at the Hamilton's house, but they couldn't host, and so we had decided we were gonna host the com- our community group that night, and she was concerned that we wouldn't have a working toilet for community group. And, uh, which is a good concern. Um, (laughs) And the thing is, though, we, we recently remodeled a bathroom and we thought it would be fun to buy one of those fancy toilets that you have to plug into the wall. And the reason the toilet wasn't working is because the electricity wasn't working. And so I came home and started fiddling with the electrical. The breaker kept flipping, and, and I just couldn't figure out why. It would hold for like five or 10 seconds, and it would flip. And, and so then I thought, well, something, there's a short somewhere. And so I, took op- I opened up every single outlet on the circuit. And I got to the last outlet. And I opened it up, and there was water in it. So my electrical problem turned into a plumbing problem. <laughs> I had realized that there was something in the new shower that we had just installed that was leaking into the wall, into the outlet, shorting the circuit. And so I spent the whole rest of the day fixing that problem. And it just wasn't what I had planned. It wasn't what I wanted to do with my day. It was was annoying, Uh, it was... Just it really bothered me that like I didn't get anything done because I spent like five hours tracing down this toilet problem for community group. And as I was reflecting on that, it's it's interesting when when stuff doesn't go your way, like the things that are inside of you kind of spill out, don't they? Like when when you're having a great day, you can you can pretend to be anybody. But when things are going badly, uh, it it shows your character. It shows who you trust. It shows how you see the world. Uh, Today, we're jumping back into Genesis, and we're going to start a story about a young man whose life does not go his way for quite a while. Uh, And we're going to take a look at the beginning of this story and work through it for the rest of this book. And, And one of the overarching themes of this story and the rest of Genesis is something called the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God has to do with how we understand the universe works and how that shapes our hearts. This story this morning also starts with a few of what we might be called or tempted to call small sins, socially acceptable sins. You know, those kind of sins when you're, when you're at community group and, and, and you talk about confession and you say like, well, you know, I'm just really struggling with pride and everybody goes, oh, and, and, and everybody just kind of thinks like, yeah, that's not a really big deal. That's one of those, everybody, that's one of those sins that you can just kind of throw out when you don't really want to talk about the big things. But what we're gonna see is these, quote, small sins ruin this family's life for decades. So we start off, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. If you've been with us through Genesis for the last, I don't know, however many years we've been in Genesis, this is is one of those section indicators. If you remember the word toledote, Uh, It's a Hebrew word, the the generations or the family records. There's 10 of them in the book. And this is the last one. The author is signifying that this is the last part of the story. And throughout this section, we're going to see the artistry of the book of Genesis come out. And and I I love this about the Bible is that uh, God's word is true, but it's also beautiful. The uh, the Holy Spirit in combination with the human author of Genesis has created this amazing artistic story with both brevity and detail. We're going to see all kinds of themes flow through this section of the book that we've already seen. There's this uh, 19th century playwright named Anton Chekhov. If you've ever heard of something called Chekhov's gun, he, he said, if, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. And it's a, that, he's talking about storytelling, and the, the author of Genesis is a master storyteller because what he's gonna do is he's gonna reference back to things that we've already seen in the book, and he's gonna bring them up again because it's gonna repeat in these really beautiful ways. Moses weaves in themes like humanity's call to rule and reign from chapter one, the test in the Garden of Eden from chapter three, sibling rivalry, which we've seen over and over and over again. We're going to see parents playing favorites like we've seen before, children deceiving their father. There's so much beauty and artistry in this book, and it's on full display in Genesis. And so we keep reading, at 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers, and the young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons, because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. But his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. As we've walked with Jacob over the last section, we've seen him grow from a schemer and a scoundrel into a godly man. God changed his name to Israel, signifying that he had he'd grown into the patriarch that God wanted him to be. He begins to trust God. But we see here that he has still inherited the parenting strategies of his parents, Back in chapter 25, we read, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac and Rebekah played favorites in their parenting. They each loved one of their children more than the other, and now Jacob is doing the same thing. Joseph is Rachel's son. We find out later in the story that he probably looks a lot like her. And Rachel is the woman that Jacob loved, his beloved wife that has died. But Joseph is also one of the youngest sons. The text says that, that J- Jacob gave his son Joseph either a robe of many colors or a long sleeved robe, depending on your translation. I think it's funny, we've got, I've got multiple versions of the same translation that have both of those things in there. I think the screen actually says long colored robe. My Bible, which is the same translation, says many colored robe. It's a difficult phrase to translate. Scholars have been working on it for a long time. John Walton says, Most commentators favor something more along the line of a full-length coat or a long-sleeved coat, either of which would indicate that Joseph is management, not labor. Joseph is not dressed to get out in the dirt and work. He's dressed to supervise. And remember, he is the second youngest of 12 And so we find him in this section doing this with his older brothers and he brings back a bad report. The word that's used for bad report is always used in the Old Testament in reference to lies or slander. So at the very best, Joseph is not being real charitable with his brothers, but he possibly is lying about them. Not much is said about Joseph's character that is negative throughout this story, but at the very beginning, our first Glimpse at Joseph, he's a little bit obnoxious. Consequently, his brothers hate him. They can't even be civil to him. A couple things to think through here. Parents, don't play favorites with your kids. Maybe that feels like a real duh kind of thing to say, but this tendency can be real insidious. You have an easy child and you have a hard child. You have a child that likes the things that you like, and you have a child that, whose interests you just don't understand. Pay close attention to your heart. Because if this was something that you could just easily like not do, I don't think it would be done as much. Because if, you're, if you play favorites with your kids, your kids are gonna notice, and it's gonna affect them. Take some some real stock and and figure out like, do how do I treat my kids? Do I love them both equally? That doesn't mean you love them the same. Everyone's different. But are you playing favorites with your children? The second thing I think we can recognize here is that you will parent the way that you were parented. Jacob is parenting just like he was parented. He's just doing what he knows. The dangerous thing about this is that you don't have to give much thought to bring your childhood into the lives of your kids. You just, it just kind of happens that way. And that might be great. If you had a really great upbringing, you're going to bring some really good things into your parenting. Or it could be really terrible. But it's probably a mix of both. And this can go the opposite way too. If, if you've perceived that your upbringing was really negative... You might swing to the opposite direction and parent in opposition to your parents. Maybe you were parented with heavy-handed discipline and so you don't give your children any discipline whatsoever. Maybe you felt abandoned by your parents and now you've created a codependency relationship with your kids. Many of us in this room are young parents We don't have a lot of experience in this. And so it sometimes takes an outside perspective, someone that you can trust to speak into your life and say, hey, this is what I see. We were talking about this in community group last week as we studied through Titus and the the exhortation that older saints should serve as models for young parents. But in Joseph's case, his father has set him up to be an obnoxious, proud teenager, which is crazy unfortunate. In the next section, starting in verse 5, we see that Joseph has a dream. He has two dreams, and and he tells it to his brothers. Not the smartest idea. Let's talk about dreams for a second. Joseph has this connection with dreams. He has some here. Later, he's going to, by the Spirit of God, interpret other people's dreams. We see God communicate in dreams throughout Genesis. It happens. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Job 33 says, For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. In a dream, a vision in the night, when some deep sleep comes over people. As they slumber on their beds, he uncovers their ears and terrifies them with warnings in order to turn a person from his actions and suppress the pride of a person. In the ancient mind, the unconscious state was a doorway to the spiritual world. And modern people, we have a hard time with this because we've been told that dreams are just the way your brain exercises itself while you sleep. And I think that's probably most often true. But not always. God sometimes communicates to people through our unconscious minds. I experienced this one time in my life. When I was 18 years old, I was dating a girl and just felt really strongly that it was not the right thing to continue doing And it was very difficult Uh, and we talked about it and we kind of agreed that it was a bad idea to continue dating each other, but it was a really hard decision to make and it caused us both a lot of pain. And a couple nights after this conversation of breaking off this relationship, I, I was just really grieved about the whole thing and I went to bed and I had a dream and in this dream, it was just, I don't usually have vivid dreams, but it was so vivid and I was at this girl's wedding a number of years from now. And I was watching the wedding and I, I saw how just amazingly happy she was to be marrying her new husband. And, and in the reception, the, the groom came and, and talked to me and said, hey, thank you for uh, making the right call. And I woke up. And I can't tell you anything more than that other than I just knew that the Lord was comforting me in that that he was just saying, hey, this is the right path. And it it really helped me process that. That doesn't usually happen to me. Maybe you're someone who feels like you get dreams from the Lord all the time. And I would say that this is something that should be considered with caution. So I think most of our dreams, if we remember them, are just a weird way that our brain processes when we are asleep. But sometimes I still think for some of us, there will be dreams that are worth holding up to our primary authority, which is the scriptures, bringing it into the community of God's people, the church to test and asking the question, is this God speaking? If you're someone who you would say like, yeah, I have have dreams that I think the Lord speaks to me. That's great. That's awesome. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't be ashamed of that but bring that into the community of church in submission to Scripture to be tested. So often, many people that I've known that that have some kind of more strange supernatural gift or unusual supernatural gift, that creates pride, which we're going to see right now in Joseph, right? He has these dreams, and he presents them to his brothers, in a very foolish way. He doesn't read the room. (laughs) And he has two dreams that are very similar. In one, he and his brothers are represented as sheaves of wheat and they all bow down to him. And in the second one, it's similar. Uh, His brothers are represented as stars and the sun and the moon are are Joseph's parents most likely. Everyone is bowing down to Joseph. There's hints of like cosmic exaltation coming from Genesis chapter one when the sun and the moon and the stars are created. And as we keep reading, we won't get there today, but as we keep reading in this story, we're going to find out that these dreams come true. Joseph is exalted to the second highest position in Egypt, even above the Pharaoh in some ways, who is the son of the Egyptian religious system. And his brothers bow down to him when they come to get grain. And so God really is speaking to Joseph and giving him insight into the future, albeit vaguely, But unfortunately, between Joseph being 17, spoiled by his father, he flaunts this in front of his family. And obviously everyone is angry and offended. Proverbs 15.2 says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. And Proverbs 14.3 says, the proud speech of a fool brings a rod of discipline, but the lips of the wise protect them. Both of these proverbs speak not to the content of the speech, but the way that it is communicated. And this is something that teenagers can be especially prone to, but it's something that many of us carry into adulthood, isn't it? You know, all I did was tell them the truth. What's the big deal? Well, maybe you could have done a better job telling them the truth. See, the way that we communicate, not just the things that we communicate, has consequences. And it's going to have really significant consequences for Joseph. And again, this, this obnoxious behavior, this pride, partially because he's young, because he doesn't know any better, partially because of what his father's parenting has done in him. Maybe this feels like a small thing, like just, oh, that's just an issue that he has to work out. And he's going to, but it's going to be really hard to work it out of him. And it's going to destroy a lot of things for a while. And then we move on to the third group, the brothers. I won't read all the verses again, but we see that the brothers have gone to pasture the flocks in Shechem. And and Jacob says, Israel says to Joseph, I I want you to go spy on them again. what does Joseph say? He goes, I'm ready, (laughs) right? Like he loves this. He likes being the tattletale. And Joseph's brothers meet him in a field, and in their envy, they plot to kill him. In Hebrew, the line is, here comes this lord of dreams. They're mocking him. And they see him coming, probably because of his crazy robe, whether it's colorful or just fancy. And what we're reminded of is Cain and Abel all over again. The brothers in the field, siblings who are envious of their brother. Cornelius Plantinga says, "When an envier, what an envier wants is not first of all what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To covet is to want somebody else's good so strongly that one is tempted to steal it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. Envy is a dangerous proclivity in our heart. A couple of years ago, uh, for those of you that, that haven't been with us long, we've met in this building for five years. We've, we rent it on Sundays. And over those five years, we've had four different owners. It changes hands pretty frequently. And it was either it was sometime in late 2019 or sometime in 2020. I don't know about you, but my dates get a little fuzzy around that time period. Um, the owner at the time that was, I think, two owners ago, uh, was interested in selling. And uh, there was a church in town that was interested in buying the property. They were, they're a large church. They were looking to launch a second campus, downtown Court d'Alene. And I at the time, I was officing here. And so I was here. I was really the only person in this building all week long. It was kind of weird, uh, but they brought te- literally teams of people with tape measures and cameras, and they were, they were planning the walls they were going to take down and the, the rooms they were going to build and how they were going to paint, and, and four or five people at a time, day after day after day. And I just kept thinking like, man, I don't really want to tell our church that we're getting removed from our building because of another church in town that's kicking us out. And it started to make me angry. And at one point, I was having a conversation with the owner of our building and I I said, you know what, I would rather this building get torn down than be be given to this other church. And it took me like a day to go like, that was really awful, I should not have said that. (laughs) And so I had to go to to the the owner of our building and say, you know what, I, I apologize, that was, Forgive me for being so awful. Like that's such a terrible thing to say about God's people. And if God has plans for this church to be here and use this space for the for the uh, you know proclamation of the gospel and the furtherance of the kingdom, who are we to stand in the way of that? And I, um, but that's that's envy, isn't it? It's not like oh, I wish we were a big church in town. It's like I don't if, if they if they if we can't have this, I don't want anybody to have this, right? And the thing is, is we put this in the minor category, right? Gossip and anger and covetous and pride and slander. Again, sitting around in community group, I'm just, I'm just really envious this week. Oh, okay. It's not like theft and murder and adultery, right? Like those big things. But these big external sins that we focus on are expressions of what we think are lesser sins that live in our heart. And this envy in these brothers is going to lead to some really dark stuff. And we know this, right? Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. A few verses later, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is giving us this insight into the fact that all of the negative evils that we see out in the world start very small in our own souls, the encouragement for us is to guard our hearts, right? The things that start on the inside will make it to the outside. There isn't a sin that lives in us that is no big deal. When we see it, when we notice it, when we're made aware of it by someone who loves us and points it out to us, everybody loves that, take care of it, deal with it before it gets out of hand. So they're gonna kill him, right? But Reuben, Reuben steps up, the oldest son. He is ultimately responsible for everyone. But it's unfortunate that Reuben doesn't have the moral authority to just put a stop to this, right? He can't just stand up and say, hey you guys, this is unacceptable. He comes up with a scheme himself. Let's just throw him in the pit and then inwardly, I'll come back later and, and rescue him. So they throw him in this pit. They tear his robe off. And this is the beginning in our story of Joseph's journey downward. From his father's right hand to a pit, to slavery, to prison. Down, down, down. And they're sitting, they're eating a meal. Notice another act of wickedness connected to a meal, just like Genesis 3. And they see these slave traders coming by. And Judah thinks, hey, we could make a little bit of money off of our brother if we sell him into slavery. He says, you know, we don't want to hurt him. He is our flesh and blood, right? And so Reuben is apparently gone somewhere, right? And the caravan comes by and they sell him into slavery. And there's this this question about, like, I, I try to point out these things that 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 people throw out as, like, reasons why you can't trust the Bible. There's this question of the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. I don't know if anybody noticed. Like, some, in one verse, they're called Ishmaelites, and in another verse, they're called Midianites. And people want to make a big deal about, like, this contradiction in the Bible. But, like, as always, like, you know, the TikTok atheist that you follow online is not the first person that's seen this. They didn't like discover this in the Bible. And, and this isn't like a Transformers movie. The writer didn't just go like, "Yeah, it's good enough. Nobody will care. You guys didn't get that, that's okay. Everyone sees this tension, right? This, is, this book has been around for thousands of years. It's been meticulously cared for and crafted, right? Just because we don't understand it on the first read doesn't mean it's a problem. These names, Ishmaelite and Midianite, are used interchangeably here and later on in Judges 8. Why is that? We don't really know. It could be that the Midianite uh, term is an ethnic designation and the Ishmaelite one is a cultural designation. Designation. That's just a guess. In Judges 8, um, the, the text says that the Midianites had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So maybe that has to do with just kind of their culture, the way they wore their clothes or their jewelry. Maybe Ishmaelite here describes their nomadic lifestyle, Midianite describes their ethnic heritage. No matter what, the author is doing this on purpose, he's giving information here. And we don't need to be confused by it. I think a lot of times we, we get worked up. We, we, we begin to doubt the scriptures because we don't understand them on first read. But we have to remember that, that the, the authors in the first audience of these books knew what they were doing. They weren't doing it haphazardly. They intended to write coherently. And beyond that, the Holy Spirit ultimately authors this book. So they sell Joseph to these traitors, Ishmaelite, Midianites. Reuben comes back, freaks out about it because that doesn't go according to his plan. And then they all come up with a plan to lie to Jacob about what happened. And this is another one of those things that's just I wanna I want to say it's beautiful, but it's also horrifying. Jacob is deceived by his sons with his other son's clothes and a baby goat. Just like he deceived his father with his brother's clothes and a baby goat. The way he has lived his life comes back on him. Another thing I think it's important to remember and, and, We need to remember this frequently throughout Genesis is this kind of stuff easily gets thrown into like Bible story territory, right? It's up on the flannel graph in Sunday school, Joseph's coat of many colors, and he's sold into slavery. But I think it's important to really humanize this as much as we can. Our word for this is human trafficking. U.S. law defines human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person into commercial sex acts or labor or services against his or her will. In 2021, over 50,000 calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline in the U.S., millions of people are trafficked each year worldwide. What is the point of bringing this up? Because we need to be able to put this into the context of real deep wickedness on the part of Joseph's brothers. This isn't just a Bible story. This is the real evil decisions of these men against their younger brother. Tim Mackey says, Jacob thinks that a wild animal has eaten his son. And in a way that's true. The wild animals are his son's. Like this story should be horrifying to us. In the middle of a family that is called blessed by God, chosen by God to be the center of his plan to restore the world, how could this happen? Why would God let this happen? Joseph is sold into slavery. Jacob thinks he's dead and he's gonna live in mourning for decades. And this is where we start As we reflect on these chapters moving forward, to think about the sovereignty of God. This chapter is the beginning of a story that illustrates God's sovereignty over the affairs of people. And sovereignty is one of those things that that we feel tension around sometimes because it's difficult to understand. Uh, John Frame says The sovereignty of God is the fact that he is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, he exercises his rule. So Christians have had a a range of ways of explaining this over the centuries, and I want to offer two extremes, and then there's a a wide variety of, of middle ground, but one extreme is what's called determinism. Determinism says that everything that has and will ever happen is decided by God. Every snowstorm, every human decision, God has ruled that each and everything that happens would happen that way. God always knows what will happen because he causes it to happen. On the far side of determinism is something called open theism. Open theism says that God knows everything that can be known, but there are circumstances and truths that are contingent on the free choices of other people that cannot be known until they happen. God not only doesn't cause everything, but actually doesn't know all of the future. And in my opinion, both of these extremes kind of treat God like a math problem that needs to be solved and not a person. I think the best way to understand sovereignty is in the normal sense of the word. If we talk about a king who is sovereign over a nation or a kingdom, that means that the king can do whatever he wants. He can build a road, He can buy out a movie theater to see a new movie all by himself. He can declare a national holiday. He has power. A true king is prevented from nothing. But that doesn't mean that the king necessarily causes or is responsible for everything that happens in the kingdom. Here's a couple passages that talk a little bit about how God exercises his will. Isaiah 46.10 says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So God tells us that he knows what will take place in the future. He has a plan for the future and he will make sure that it happens. In a story in 1 Samuel 23, we read, David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has reliable information from Saul that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, "He will come down." Then David asked, "Will the citizens of Keilah hand me and my men over to Saul?" they will, the Lord responded. So David and his men numbered about 600, left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. When it was reported that Saul to Saul that David escaped from Keilah, he called off the expedition. This is an interesting story because it shows us that God knows what will happen in the future if certain other things happen. If these people do this, Will this happen? If I do this, will those people do that? And and God tells David, yes, if if you do this, these people will do that. Well, David doesn't do that, and so these people don't do that other thing. Uh, This is called a counterfactual, what might happen. And, And it seems to show us that God knows what might happen if certain choices are made. Then we read in Ezekiel 18, do I take, this is God speaking, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, I don't take pleasure when he turns don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? I think this is a really important factor. God doesn't always get what he wants. God says, I don't I don't like it when people do wicked things. I would rather that they turn. And when they don't, it doesn't make me happy. This and many other passages could be pulled open to talk about how God's will interacts with the creation. He knows what's going to happen, no matter what free choices his creatures make. Some of these choices please him, some of them don't, but he will make sure that his plan for the creation succeeds, and he's also willing to step in and direct things when he needs to. This is something that Joseph realizes by the end of this book. In chapter 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Joseph's maturity here, he's probably 55 years old when he says this. Verses 17 back in 37. He recognizes that the awful things that happen to him are part of God's plan to keep the people that he loves, the family that he chose, alive. And this is a lesson for all of us, that the sooner we learn it, the better. The BDN of says, God's plan and his steadfast love very often includes our suffering. If we don't know how to understand this, we will not know how to suffer well. We need to realize that even if our suffering is not directly caused by God. It is allowed by God and that he sees it as the best way to move us forward to be made more like Jesus. God didn't want Jacob to play favorites in his parenting. God didn't make Joseph's brothers hate him. God didn't create the institution of slavery, but God did see a way to achieve his purposes through all those evil things. And some of us are really struggling right now. Some of you are, maybe you're having the, the best summer of your lives. But some of us are really hurting. There's some things either uh, in our lives or in our family's lives that are really difficult. Some of these things might be because we, of our pride or our foolishness that we've put ourselves in difficult situations. Some of it might be because other people's sin has caused us harm. And it's really natural to think like, God, why would you let this happen You said you loved me. You said you cared about me. I trusted you. And at this point in the story, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, if we've read ahead to Genesis 50, we know the answer. But at this point in the story, Jacob has lost his beloved son. His other sons have... um, committed a a violent act of, of human trafficking and potentially murder secondhand. Joseph has been sold into a foreign nation to be a slave. He has no hope of seeing his family ever again. And in that point, it's really hard to go, yeah, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. But the reality is, even though we might not understand it, the best way for God to preserve this family safely through their future struggles is to send Joseph ahead to Egypt. Even though the means seem really wicked. And they are. Because In our struggles, none of it is wasted. None of it is meaningless. God will make sure that it all has a purpose. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And you know, I know that can sound trite and unhelpful, and sometimes it really feels that way. But if those things at bedrock are true, the future that God sees for you must be better than the suffering that you're experiencing now. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are called as Christians to follow in the footsteps of our king. And in this passage, like Joseph, Jesus is the beloved son of the father. Like Joseph, Jesus' family doesn't believe his message. Just like Joseph, Jesus is portrayed by his brothers. Like Joseph, he's brought down from his place of honor to a place of servitude. But like Joseph, he rises up out of that. He inherits a position at the right hand of the Father. He rules over all things and saves the very people that are responsible for his suffering. We see Jesus' story throughout Joseph's story. The difference, though, is that Jesus chose to suffer. Jesus chose to be brought low so that he could save you, so that he could save me. Jesus willingly endured the suffering because of the joy that he, was, that he knew was on the other side, to be given a kingdom and a people forever. And if Jesus, our King, our Savior, willingly suffered in order to be exalted, in order to rescue us from sin and death, do we trust him to have your best interests at heart, even when you aren't sure what the future holds, when you can't see the outcome? when suffering comes and you can't make sense of it. Whether it seems like your day has been ruined by a water leak, or your life seems ruined because of tragedy, we all have the opportunity to trust that where we are is exactly where God wants us to be. Even if we don't know why. Joseph figures this out after 38 years of ups and downs, which we'll get to at the end of the summer. But we can choose to believe it today. In the middle of difficult circumstances, or better yet, before difficult circumstances come, we can find joy empowered by the Spirit of God within us, not in what is happening to us, but in the future that has been promised to us by God. Let's do some questions. God obviously pursued Joseph through challenges. Does God not pursue each of us in our unique journeys? Yeah. I think so. I think that's a really beautiful insight into the way this story is gonna unfold. God is never, multiple times throughout this text, it's gonna say God was with Joseph. And I think that's important because we often believe that if God is with me, I will be happy, I will be wealthy, I will be healthy, my relationships will work. But that's not necessarily true. God is with Joseph as he goes into the prison, just as much as when he comes out of it. And I think that's a really encouraging thing to see. That God is, uh, I will, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? I've recently been convicted of the sin of jealousy, I want to change and be someone who celebrates the blessings of others. Where do I start? Oh, that's good. Um, I think one way to start is to celebrate your own blessings. Jealousy comes from believing that, that you have not been given enough, that you don't have what they have, that, that God treats them better than he treats you. But the reality is, if you started writing down all of the things in your life that you have to be thankful for, that you can show gratitude for, that are good, you'd probably run out of paper. And I think the recognition that God is good to you, we sang it, the the goodness of God is running after me, is pursuing us. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Hmm. Psalm 23, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever like the recognition that God is good toward you. And to take a few minutes to just go like, here are all the ways. And then take that and respond to it in prayer. Thank him for all the things that he gives you. Glorify him for all the things that he does for you. Begin to feel his love for you in those things. And it might be that you don't get the thing that you think you need that you don't have, but that's where I would start. Jesus and Joseph's stories from exaltation down in the pit back up to reigning show grace and saving the nations and world. <laughs> Post-millennial hope. <laughs> Anonymous question. <clears throat> um, yeah, Maybe. Maybe. Maybe the premillennial hope, who knows? I'm so terrified of bringing my childhood into my kids' lives. How do I ensure I keep them from the manipulation and negativity I grew up with? Oh, thank you, Dylan. Uh, I think you surround yourself with wise, older counselors that have been parenting uh, a long time and have good results. A lot of times I think, people who have parenting advice weren't really good parents. Like you see their kids and you're like, I'm not really sure I want to take advice from you. (laughs) But fortunately we have a number of older couples in this church who have really great kids and were excellent parents and still are excellent parents. Uh, Invite yourselves over to dinner at their house. You have my permission (laughs) and let them speak into your life. There's something that we've been going over in our um, relational elders training with the guys that I'm working with there um, about the difference between transparency and vulnerability, and and I think this is important in the way that we uh, receive feedback, and it's it's this we many times we're okay with transparency. We've been trained as the people of God to be open about our lives to say like here I am I'm an open book this is it, and that feels. Uh, like a relational bridge, and it is. But if you invite someone to speak into your life, if you act in transparency and and like lay all your cards out on the table, and then they say, hey, here's what I see, and then you don't listen to them, then then you're not really acting in vulnerability. Transparency is being see-through. Vulnerability is being able to be touched. So if you really uh, if, if you want to seek out someone to be trained by them as a, as a parent, you have to ask yourself the question, am I willing to do the things that these people that I am trusting are asking me to do? And that can be scary because they could be wrong, but if you have gotten to know them and have and, and have valued the fruit of their life and have seen the fruit of their parenting, um, they can be a real blessing to you. But you have to be willing to go, okay i'm going to do I'm going trust that you see something and I'm going to do the thing at least for a while that you're suggesting that I do I think <laughs> everybody go talk to Dylan after church <laughs> help him help him raise his kids and man we all need this so many of us have little kids they'll all come flooding back in here after service is over and and we we've talked about this before but but older saints we need your help uh, so be brave, take the initiative. Uh, think about how you communicate just as much as what you communicate, uh, but uh, help us uh, with our parenting issues. It's a good, good question. we Are gonna take communion? We always do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is looking forward to a time on the other side of suffering where he will feast with his people again. One of the reasons we participate in the communion meal is to anticipate that feast with Jesus one day. A feast that Jesus has won for us through his death and resurrection, through his suffering. Jesus said, this this good thing is coming, but I have got to get through this suffering first. And we have a similar calling. We are, we are not, I was talking with someone this week and there's a line about, you know, Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. That's not true. Jesus suffered and we're called to be like him. Not because we earn our salvation that we need to suffer in order to be made right with God, but because somehow we are shaped into people that are fit for heaven through t- trials. And so we come and we remember his broken body and his shed blood. We anticipate his return and we receive grace to persevere in our own suffering. And we do it as people with our allegiance to Christ. And so as we have been in the habit of doing, before we take communion, we will... um, remind ourselves of who we are as Christians. We will recite the Nicene Creed, which has been the standard of what Christians believe for 1700 years. Texts that all come from scripture cobbled together to say like, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. We'll sing together. I invite you to come up and and take the bread and the cup back to your seat. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience to consider whether whether this is a really good season or whether you're in the midst of what feels like the pit, to recognize that God has good for you. And it goes through those circumstances, most likely not around them. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Quarterly Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.